Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sigurd Neubauer about his just-published book, The Gulf Region and Israel, Old Struggles, New Alliances. Sigurd Neubauer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Sigurd, it would probably be nice to start with a little bit of an intellectual history of yours and how you got to writing this book. The book has been in the works for about a year and a half. And um, I would say that I have really written several books before the final version uh, came to its fruition. Because um, initially when I set out to write the book... I thought the book was primarily going to be about the rift between Qatar and its immediate neighbors, and my focus would uh, be on the diplomatic process, which was spearheaded by uh, the United States uh, with support of Kuwait, and uh, also um, analyzing some of the uh, propaganda warfare that took place in the United States. So that was the first draft of my manuscript. But then things started to change. And one of the remarkable changes that we saw, of course, was uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's visit uh, to Oman. And it was an unannounced visit, and it was framed within uh, the framework of the peace process. And um, that, to me, uh, was the first sign that this was a much larger struggle that was uh, playing out in the Middle East. So from that point on, I started rewriting the book and rewriting the book. And then as more and more sources came, uh, became available, I had to change a lot of the premises once again. So uh, it is almost uh, two years of work before this book uh, came to its final fruition. Tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in this in the first place. My interest in the Gulf region really began in late 2008-2009. At that time, I had um, first gotten my uh, start in Washington as a foreign policy analyst, and I uh, moderated um, several events with various ambassadors posted to the United States. And through that, I was through that network, I was able to attend the Manama Dialogue in Bahrain and the Bahraini ambassador to the United States. Uh, she was so kind to invite me. And I traveled in 2000, late 2010 to Bahrain, where I had the opportunity and privilege to interview the foreign minister. And, and we discussed the Arab Peace Initiative. And from there, I traveled to Oman and UAE. And it just, at that time, it just became a fascinating world uh, for me, because it was right before the Arab Spring, and then, of course, when the Arab Spring 
uh, came to fruition uh, in early 2011 uh, in Bahrain, it really changed the dynamics quite significantly. And almost related to your book, the uh, ambassador of Bahrain who you were referring to was the first Arab ambassador who was Jewish. Yes, that is correct. And in fact, I I had lunch with her and her family in Bahrain, and it was just really she was really a wonderful person, or she still is a wonderful person. And um, it was it, it was when I first met her, Bahrain was really doing quite well. Um, it was confident, it was uh, progressive, and it and it really had a positive message. I think that resonated beyond the Gulf region, and she was kind of the symbol of that. The book really is about two sides, and it's two sides of the same coin, granted. One is the um, what, what was your starting point, which is the rift in the Gulf between Qatar on the one hand, and on the other hand, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. And then it's about relationships between the Gulf and Israel. And what I'd like to do is start off with the rift in the Gulf itself, which is also where you start, really, in your book. And one conclusion that I thought one can draw from the book is that the best one can hope for is a face-saving accommodation, that a real solution would have to involve a 180-degree turnaround on one of the two sides in terms of basic policy principles. In other words, Qatar adopts UAE-Saudi attitudes, or the kingdom and the emirates accept the principle of countries following policies of their own. Yes. Yes, that is that is really where um, where where the de facto uh, line is, and I think it's really important to understand that that was the U.S. position, because um, what we do know now from the benefit of hindsight was that Saudi Arabia had asked President Trump personally uh, for his permission to invade Qatar. Um, President Trump, uh, with the support of Secretary Mattis. And Secretary uh, of the of State Tillerson obviously rejected that. And what they did was that they said we are not going to accept uh, that proposal. And instead, what we're going to do is that we're going to resolve this within the tent of the Gulf, which is to say that the United States called on Kuwait to mediate. Um, and in the background, uh, the Americans were supporting. Uh, or pressuring the parties um, to 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 light up on Qatar. That is the story. And if you look at the timeline as this uh, feud escalated, you will see that the um, the uh, blockade was imposed on June fifth. Um, on the sixth, um, the Saudis asked for permission to invade Qatar. President Trump told them no, and then it took about. Three weeks, almost three weeks um, after that, uh, it was first on June 19th that Tillerson said, uh, requested that the feuding parties should announce why, uh, should announce their grievances against Qatar. And that is when the 13 demands came um, out. And the 13 demands came at the point where Basically, the, the, the crisis was over as far as the United States was concerned. And the 13 demands were issued in a way uh, so that 
the grievances could be articulated in a manner that um, the the broader public and expert community could understand. But there were also demands uh, that uh, essentially, if met, would have undermined almost totally Qatar's independence and sovereignty. Yes, that is correct. But by the time by the time these demands were issued, the United States already knew, and the parties already knew that um, no steps, military steps against Qatar would be supported by the United States, and because the Egyptians at that time also had a rotating seat on the UN Security Council, um, the Egyptians had opened up for a UN Security Council investigation of Qatar, and that was something that uh, the Americans shut down um, immediately. President Trump, as a matter of fact, called Sisi uh, when the four foreign ministers were um, from the blockading states were in in Cairo. Um, um, you you might recall that there was a very awkward press conference where all of them were together, and one of the expectations at that time was that uh, Qatar would be expelled from the Arab League. Um, and that was also an intervention that happened by the United States before the 13 demands came out. So I would say that, yes, it is true that the 13 demands would have crippled Qatar, but they came at the point where the U.S. position was pretty clear uh, where it stood vis-a-vis uh, -vis the need to, to, to patch up the, uh, the, the rift within the Gulf uh, while at the same time uh, protecting Qatar's sovereignty. Which basically leads me to another conclusion from your book, which is that the rift in the Gulf has simply hardened fault lines. And it strikes me that you see that in two ways. One is that while Saudi Arabia and the UAE appear to harden their insistence that others adopt their hardline opposition to dissent, political Islam, and you see countries like Turkey, Qatar, uh, and particularly Qatar, anchoring in law exactly the opposite by, for example, recognizing the principle of political asylum. And the other thing it stri that strikes me that you see is um, uh, that uh, basically every mediation attempt, whether the, by, the United, by, by the big powers, whether by the United States, by the Europeans, by the Russians, or by the Chinese, has failed, that they're simply, at least on one side of the divide, there is no interest in, in resolving this in any form of negotiation. Yes, uh, that has been the consistent factor uh, throughout, um, uh, throughout this crisis. And uh, now we are, of course, um, three years later, and uh, the blockade is still in place. And um, country citizens and businessmen cannot travel into the blockading countries and and it has become the status quo. And uh, of course, over these past three years, we have seen that the Iranians have uh, have attacked um, Saudi Arabia's strategic oil facilities, and we have also seen the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And neither of these two uh, mega events in, in, the, in the cause of uh, geopolitics has really um, moved the sides um, closer to any effort uh, to engage in reconciliation. I mean, 
the the entrenching of the fault lines raises more fundamental questions of, of whether the differences are structural rather than political. And that's particularly given that Qatar sees itself as a country sandwiched between two of the region's behemoths, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And both are friends, partners, whatever you want to call them, and potential threats prompting Qatar to ensure that it would be politically, uh, uh, that it politically would not in it resemble either of the two behemoths. Yes, I, I think I think one of the I think that the way that um, the West is viewing the crisis is very different than the way the the Gulf is viewing the crisis. Um, let me give you an example. In the West, um, I think that the Gulf region as a whole has suffered tremendous reputational damage. It is clear that this is a personality dispute between the uh, rival uh, monarchies of the Gulf and um, that in the interest of strategic collaboration, resolving this uh, this uh, crisis would be better off. That is how the West, how it is seen in the, in the West. Um, in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh, I think that there's a very different view. And the view in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh is that uh, – Saudi Arabia and and uh, the United Arab Emirates have won uh, this conflict. Qatar is boxed in. Qatar has very little uh, room to maneuver in the region, and and uh, and as President Trump and his policy towards Iran fluctuates, uh, Abu Dhabi and Riyadh can deal directly with the Iranians on their own terms. They can deal with the Israelis on their own terms, and and they deal with the Americans on their own terms. And, and Qatar is just the it's just not a factor to them. That's that's how they see it. Um, in Qatar, of course, they are extremely frustrated because they still fear the worst um, could yet come. That their their regional adversaries are just waiting for. For, for the right geopolitical opportunity to, to finish what they had started. So this is, this is uh, how I think uh, the conflict is being seen in, 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 in Doha, how it's being seen in, in uh, Abu Dhabi and Riyadh, and of course in Washington where um, the Americans are, are very frustrated uh, by the lack of, of movement. I mean, the other side of the coin is that you could also argue that the UAE and Saudi Arabia are in a cul-de-sac when it comes to Qatar. They've failed to get the support of any major power, the United States, Europe, Russia, China. And in fact, the desire to see the Gulf Rift go away may be the only thing big powers agree on these days. Yeah, and I would take it a step further. I would say that um, uh, the Israelis also opposed the uh, the rift uh, between the Arab states and took uh, concrete steps to prevent any encroachment um, against made by 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 the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia against encroaching on the U.S. Qatar strategic uh, relationship. So if you look if you look at all the actors internationally within the region and certainly the global powers, um, it was only the four blockading states and some of their uh, surrogate uh, partners. 
that supported this rift. Uh, internationally, there's a consensus that this was a crisis that was was needless. And what is interesting, I think, personally, is that it was the three non-Arab powers of the Middle East, namely Iran, Israel, and Turkey, that each, for their own reasons, came to the defense of Qatar. Right. I mean, another conclusion from your book, I think, is, and you know, from your analysis, is uh, the your, your, the portrayal, the detailed portrayal of the failed mediation efforts, which means that the only likely way to end the rift is in a larger context, like a rejiggering of security arrangements in the Gulf. Something that may be in, that isn't inevitable, but may be still a ways off. Maybe I think I think one of the challenges that that you're dealing with in the Gulf is that there's tremendous frustration with President Trump. They will not publicly admit it, but um, his zigzag uh, policies and unreliability, as they see it, has has brought serious question marks to the present U.S. role um, in the region. At the same time, the United States is an extraordinary attractive partner um, for the Gulf states, uh, for both sides of the uh, dispute, because the United States respects sovereignty and and respects uh, the sovereign decisions of these monarchies to carry out um, their foreign policy and domestic affairs as they see fit, whereas many other um, countries, um, including in the region, they have a client state approach towards the smaller Gulf states. So if you, for instance, look at the United Arab Emirates as a, as a case in point, it is still a small country, and its outsized power is directly tied to its uh, decision to link itself directly with Saudi Arabia. If it didn't have that partnership with Saudi Arabia, Oman would balance out uh, UAE for two reasons. First, Oman is uh, larger geographically, and it also has a larger population. And as we have seen, uh, Oman and Oman uh, has been successful in balancing um, between maintaining strategic partnerships with the West and at the same time have good relationships with Iran and Israel, which is not an easy thing to do. So in the case of the United Arab Emirates, because it is still a small country, it feels that it has a bigger role um, to play in the region for a variety of reasons, and it is able to do so because of its relationship with Saudi Arabia. If you cut that relationship, or if that relationship somehow changes, then um, the UAE goes back to just being one out of six um, member states. And if you look at uh, the various party uh, partners that the UAE has in the region, whether it's Egypt um, and Israel, um, it is limited where it can go. It has now, as we know, an adversarial relationship with Qatar, with Oman, and certainly with Turkey and, and with Iran. So there's not a lot of movement uh, for the UAE um, should it seek alternative arrangements because the terms with either Russia or 
uh, with Iran or China are not are not going to be the be favorable to the status quo with it, which it enjoys with the United States. And I would argue that that is true also for uh, for the smaller uh, Gulf countries as well. Which also, which also uh, 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 sorry, which also, also um, explains the relationship with Israel. Perhaps we can start off um, on Israel by describing how diff- describe how difficult it was to report and write that part of the book. It was that was really the hardest part because there was just a lot of assumptions that was that uh, that was being made during uh, the Gulf crisis, and one of those assumptions was that when you had neoconservative surrogates in the United States going out and and explicitly criticizing um, the Qatar. Um, Hamas relationship and suggesting or not suggesting but really implying that because there was a relationship between those two entities Qatar was supporting terrorism and that it was and because it was supporting terrorism the United States needed to withdraw its base uh, from Qatar and that was a way to quote unquote punish Qatar um, for its behavior. And then, of course, um, Al Jazeera became a factor as well because of many of the unsavory guests that the network has hosted over the years. And it just became this almost perfect storm, if you will. Um, and for non-experts, um, it was tempting to believe that Israel was um, uh in effect, supporting the blockade, that that was a that was a reasonable conclusion for non-experts to make. But if you look deeper, um, and I had I had read extensive literature about the Qatar-Israel relationship, which for the most part had been a very positive relationship in the over the thirteen years that had um, taken place. And if you look at Israel as a regional actor, uh, Israel as a regional actor has always sought to um, make inroads in the Gulf and both in terms of confronting Iran and having a base in the region, but also as, as, a, as a way to reach out the hand in peace, if you will, to its Arab neighbors. So, so it just if, if you had that basic understanding of the Israel-Gulf relationship, coupled with the fact that Qatar had always honored its pledges to uh, to uh, bring money for Gaza reconstruction, then it just then the premises that Qatar supported terrorism and that the Qatar uh, Hamas relationship um, which uh, which had always always been complex, but that that all of a sudden that that equation had changed, that was a red flag to uh, to the seasoned observer, and of course, with the benefit of the hindsight, we saw that legislation to designate Qatar as a state sponsor of terrorism um, was introduced in the Congress, and the fact that APAC and pro-Israel groups never picked up that legislation that was a clear sign that the Israelis did not support it. Because uh, 
the issue of Hamas and 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 terrorism in Gaza is clearly within the domain of APAC and um, uh, and pro-Israel groups. Yeah, although a lot of those relationships, of course, went much further back. Uh, Qatar is the only uh, Arab state that officially and above the table has invested in Israel. Look at the uh, at the stadium in the football stadium in Zahnin. Um The Israelis have been selling non-lethal equipment to the Saudi military for decades. Uh, there were all the relationships with through people like Adnan Khashoggi and others who even visited Israel. So, in effect, those inroads were long there. I mean, you had Israelis, um, foreign, foreign office, uh, foreign ministry officials with dual passports going back and forth every month. Yes. Uh, you know, so those relations were, the, were longstanding. And what seems to have happened more is that they both sides felt more comfortable, particularly the Gulf, about being more overt about the existence of the relationships and then closer cooperation on intelligence, security, and things like that. Yes, but I also think what is interesting, again, with the benefit of the hindsight here, is that um, it has also been, been clear to me the miscalculation from the United Arab Emirates in particular, believing that its relationship with Israel and believing that um, there is enough um, uncertainty uh, about how the official um, Qatar-Israel relationship came to an end, that that was an opportunity um, to take some to, – to play on that uncertainty and bring it in front of an untested American administration and, so to speak, relegate an old uh, – the feud between the, the Al Nahyans of Abu Dhabi and the Al Thanis of Qatar, because, and that is also why I call my book "Old Struggles, New Alliances," because the struggle between the Al Nahyans and and um, and um, the, the, ruler, the rulers of Abu Dhabi, yeah, and 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 the Al Thanis go back a very very long time, and um, and to kind of use. Or, or believe that neither the Israelis, the Americans, and and the Brits would be unaware of these these bad tribal relationships and kind of look at um, the relationship between um, the Gulf states and Israel as they started from scratch with the ascent of President Trump. That is that to me is 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 perhaps the most disappointing aspect of of it all because it fundamentally um, underscores a complete miscalculation of what the United States is, how the United States sees the region, and how the Israelis, quite frankly, see the region and how they have been engaging with with these parties for for a very long time. That was sort of evident in what you, maybe not in those words, but essentially um, uh, describe as the watershed in uh, certainly for the UAE in developing relations or deepening relations with Israel, namely the complicated and controversial acquisition in 2005 of Britain's P&O steam navigation company yes. by Dubai's state-owned DP World. The acquisition sparked congressional opposition to the inclusion 
of six U.S. ports in the deal. Yes. Why was this a watershed in significantly tightening already existing unofficial relations with Israel? Because the United Arab Emirates uh, saw that it was vulnerable in the post 9-11th environment in the United States. And during that time, there were a lot of question marks in terms of um, U.S. policy towards the region. Um, the United States had, of course, um, suffered the, the biggest uh, terrorist attack in its in its history, uh, at least since Pearl Harbor. And um, at that time, the United States had decided to use all the resources at its disposal to fight what at that time was called the war on terror. And the United Arab Emirates was a small country, and and because two of it, two of the nine eleven terrorists had come from the United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates was, was afraid that it would get caught up in that massive um, uh, massive anti-extremism anti uh, narrative that existed in, in the United States at that time. And when congressional Democrats decided to play politics with the United Arab Emirates, it was, it was a strategic threat that needed to to be mitigated, and they saw an, an opening. They turned the crisis into an opportunity, and they saw an opening in terms of partnering with the Israelis in framing a message in Washington, which focused namely on the following: our interests are aligned with the Israeli interests, and so the United Arab Emirates uh, took concrete steps um, to broadcast that message, both to the Americans and to the Israelis. I discuss in my book, uh, the back channel that was um, instituted between the United Arab Emirates and the Israeli Ministry of Defense, um, and um, how that back channel led to greater coordination on, on Iran policy, because that was ultimately what uh, the Israelis were concerned about. This is, of course, pre-Arab Spring. And so that is really how the United Arab Emirates relationship with Israel became a strategic partnership, because as we know, the two countries do not enjoy formal diplomatic relations, but the coordination within the security field um, warrants to describe the relationship as, as a de facto strategic partnership. You, you describe indeed that, that evolution in great detail. Maybe you can talk a, lot, a bit about the role of the UAE ambassador in Washington, Yusuf Al-Oteba, Israeli Major General Amos Gilead, yeah. Defense Ministry, and also the role of the primarily Geneva-based companies often operated by Israelis that we're really doing a lot of the business. Yes, and 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 what is interesting is that um, the is if you look at the timeline of two thousand and and six and um, two thousand and nine, this during this timeline, um, Israel UAE was really playing up with catch up with Qatar because at that time. Uh, the Qatar-Israel relationship was flourishing. We have seen that during that time, um, the Americans, with the support of uh, of, of Israel, uh, specifically asked Qatar to host the Hamas Bureau. We saw that Qatar had secured a uh, 
seat on the UN Security Council uh, through the support of the Israelis and used its seat to sponsor a UN Security Council resolution that brought an end to the war between Israel and Hezbollah. So this was in 2006. And and as the United Arab Emirates, we know, of course, that they are fiercely competitive with, with, with Qatar. And I, and I would suspect that one factor to strengthen its relationship with Israel was not just about the Washington influencing game and, and shielding its, its reputation from, from, the, uh, from the turbulent partisan politics and during the 9-11 era, but it was also as a way to, to, to balance a little bit with Qatar and, at the time, the strong Qatari-Israeli relationship. Both countries have benefited from the relationship in more ways than meet the eye. Perhaps you can describe how. I would say that if you look at all the Gulf countries, they are, by definition, really small countries. Qatar has, as we know, 200 and some 30,000 citizens. The UAE has a couple of million. Um, And... Oman has has about six or seven million, if I remember correctly, and these these countries have all sought to play larger role within the Gulf region, but also internationally. And Israel is really the only country in the Middle East that has strategic depth, um, certainly in that, and that is able to have a sustained impact on US policy. Um, and there are no there are no constituencies in the United States that automatically support the Gulf states, um, other than the expert community, of course, and uh well Israel's the only only Middle Eastern state that has a grassroots yes, yes, exactly. And at the same time, um we have really seen since uh, since uh, President Nasser of Egypt, that the security of the uh, Gulf region has been tied to the security of the Levant and to the Israeli-Palestinian theater in particular. And if you look at uh, when some of the relationships between the Gulf states, um, with the exception of Oman, of course, and and Israel really came to fruition was during the um, Right after the the Madrid talks of nineteen ninety early nineteen nineties, and then of course the Oslo process, and at that time the United States wanted to anchor uh, Israel Gulf relations as part of a broader Arab Israeli peace, and um, so the Gulf states found that they could benefit quite significantly from cooperating with the Israelis, and they could um, help transform their relationships with the United States in the process. And then you had the uh, the botched killing of Hamas operative Mahmoud al-Mahmoud yeah. which, in, in Dubai, which uh, in which it was clear that the Israelis were responsible for the killing, and yet it didn't really have an impact on the relationship. Tell us a little bit about the incident and why it did not have that kind of an impact. Um, I, of course, uh, these kind of uh, incidents are directly attributed to the vision of, of the leader. And for Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, uh, f- from his perspective, he had 
he had uh, put significant prestige in his relationship with Israel. He had uh, allowed the Israelis to open up a trade office in Dubai. He had allowed the Israelis to uh, have a presence through uh, the UN uh, uh, organization dedicated to renewable energy in Abu Dhabi. And all of a sudden, you had the Israeli prime minister, uh, uh, so to speak, uh, approving an operation to kill a, a Hamas operative in, uh, in Dubai. And that was extraordinarily damaging. I think both for the Israelis, they got caught. Um, of course, they never admitted or denied the operation, which is, in standard, which is standard with their, their, their practices. But from the UAE, they had to they had to um they had to condemn it and they had to to save face and there was a little bit of a uh, of a downgrade in relationships at that time but again the broader strategic benefits that the UAE benefited from Israel is especially if it was going to play a larger role in Washington um would not allow for the UA to fully break from from the Israelis, and I think it's also important to understand that the relationship between the UAE and Israel is not a relationship among two equals. Meaning, um, Israel is 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 much stronger in that relationship because of its capability, its influence. And the United Arab Emirates um, is, after all, a small country in the Gulf that seeks to play a larger role than its natural size. And it can only do so by having a, a web of alliances and partnerships. And one of those uh, partnerships uh, is through, through Israel. I mean, you've, you've sort of hinted and talked about this, but let's like to flesh it out a little bit. Uh, in the sense that the UAE's clout in Washington has been enhanced as a result of its ties to Israel. But certainly when it comes to Qatar, that really hasn't been a success story, neither in terms of influencing U.S. policy or in terms of getting legislation passed in Congress. Yes, and I would I would say that that is both a it has been a failure for the United Arab Emirates um, because it has fundamentally not understood Washington and the Israelis. From a Washington perspective, um, yes, in Washington, there is plenty of room for lobbying and influencing campaigns and so forth. But at the end, um, in the United States, there are huge bureaucratic interests that favors the status quo, whether it's the Pentagon the military, uh, the State Department, the intelligence organizations, and ultimately policy is set by government and not by outside influence groups. And to believe that you could cook up a influencing campaign, take it to the president, and the president would tweet, and then Qatar would fall like a domino, that is that is a fundamental misreading of how the U.S. government works. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect is that the Israelis made a strategic decision to um, counter Iran. That is the number one threat uh, to uh, to its uh, security. And from from that perspective, into Arab fighting um, only potentially 
strengthens Iran's hand and and um, creates more turmoil. And remember, the Israelis have seen uh, the dynamic um, against Qatar before. I mean, it was in 1996 that the four, the same four states that went after Qatar in 2017, when they tried to unseat the Emir of Qatar at the time. Sheikh Hamad, and it was that event that led Israel to establish relationship with Qatar to begin with. So, in other words, um, the Israelis had seen this before, the Americans had seen this before, and they were just not going to let that happen. And I think also, I'm again, I'm speculating, but from an Israeli perspective, you can both have a good relationship with the UAE and Qatar at the same time. You don't have to get into these sort of regional struggles. And I think that that is the perspective that they had when the crisis broke out. Which takes us to the Israel-Qatar relationship, which is a very different relationship from that with the UAE. And in some ways, you could argue that Israel has become part of Qatar's defense strategy and I wonder whether that explains some of the UAE hostility towards Qatar. I think that the UAE was surprised um, that Israel would play such a decisive role. I think that they were surprised that the Trump administration would not support these kind of policies. And, and I think that they were surprised that, that countries such as Iran and Turkey would also put the brakes on preventing um, inter-Arab squabbles from becoming hot conflicts. And Israel, in that, in that, from that point of view, really is in line with the rest of the international community. Uh, it's in line with France, with Britain, with Germany, uh, who, all, who all supported the Gulf reconciliation while at the same time working uh, practically with with both sides. So so I think that if anything we have seen that Israel is the way that it operates is very much within the western orbit and within the western consensus. Do you see changes domestically in the Gulf that explain the difference in attitudes towards Israel at times of heightened tension with the Palestinians? Look at, for example, the closure of the uh, Israeli office in Oman and the downgrading later closure of the office in Doha during the Intifada, as opposed to the responses now as Israel moves towards annexation. Well, let me just um, put it in a different term. I think that if you look at the United Arab Emirates, they, they have engaged Israel openly. They have opened, they have engaged in soft power um, issues such as opening up a Jewish community and 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 uh, the United Arab Emirates, and these are important messaging that messages uh, to Israel and to to Jews in general that the United Arab Emirates uh, views Israel as a positive role in the Middle East, um, and I don't think that that will change with the annexation debate per se. In the in in case of Qatar, I think it's very important to emphasize that in Qatar, there is an understanding that um, Israel and American Jews are not an adversary. In other words, in Qatar, there's an understanding that the campaign against them was something that was organized by their own neighbors and that American Jewish groups and Israel 
actively refuted to get dragged into that war or into that conflict. So, so in other words, that has strengthened, in my observation, the view of Qatar, the view of Jews and the view of Israel among Qataris in general, because Qataris in general remain unbelievably angry at their neighbors for having been cut off from their cousins in neighboring countries and from even visiting family and, and conducting business. And they, they have a great understanding of what the Gulf crisis was really about and the fact that in, a, in the Middle East, that they don't believe that there's a Jewish conspiracy in this game that's actually in, in net positive out of a bad situation, I think. Which uh, leads us to Gaza's relationships with Hamas, with Hezbollah, which have been helpful to Israel, but contributed to the souring of its relations with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and also in some ways complicated Palestinian politics. Yes, and if you look at uh, if you look at the um, uh, reconstruction of Lebanon in two thousand and six after the after the um, Israel-Lebanon war, that at that time, the Qataris presented themselves as, as an Arab power uh, working on reconstructing Lebanon and uh, uh, helping the Lebanese people avoid another cost- costly civil war. Um, of course, that is one aspect of the story. The other aspect of the story that has not come out until now in my book, of course, is that all of that... Uh, coordination took directly place with the Israelis. It was the Israelis that provided Qatar with the space to operate in Lebanon, and it was the Israelis that provided the space for Qatar to operate in Gaza. And in that aspect, the Israelis elevated Qatar's uh, standing as a, as a, as a Arab uh, power, so to speak, even though it's, it's a very small country. You describe Al Jazeera as the real thorn in the side of the Israeli Gaddafi relations. Describe what you mean by that. Well, if you look at the positive tenets of the Qatar Israel relationship and how they were cooperating really well in Gaza and in, in southern Lebanon, and they were actually trying to build peace um, after devastating conflicts, and you had the Al Jazeera network uh, savaging Israel. That made the Israelis unbelievably angry because they felt they had such a good relationship and warm relationship with with Qatar, and and uh, Al Jazeera was savaging them. Now, um, having seen it from 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 another aspect, it just seems to me that the explanation for that is very simple, and that is that the Qataris never shared with Al Jazeera. Uh, what they were doing with the Israelis, so the Qataris, so the Al Jazeera was was so to speak in the dark about the broader strategic issues that were taking place, and and activist journalists um, who had their own bias and often in case an anti-Israel bias just ran with their own ideological agenda, if you will. Um. I mean, in all of this, Oman is the odd man out, which meant again meant that its relationship to both Israel and the United States was very different. But also, it was as much, in many ways, a target of the Emiratis as was Qatar. Yes. I think what is important to understand, again, looking at how the Israel-Oman relationship began, and it began really 
with with Caboose, Sultan Caboose, as we know, uh, defied the Arab consensus when he did not boycott Israel's uh, peace treaty with Egypt in 1979, and it and Sultan Caboose actively supported his friend and mentor, King Hussein of Jordan, um, and his quest to uh, to make peace with the Israelis, and and Caboose did so because. Um, that was, of course, in in 1979 and in the mid 1990s, respectively. But Oman's relationship with Israel really began in in the 1970s, right after Kabus came to power. The Israelis helped him fight the Dofa Rebellion um, in Oman, which was, of course, the civil war um, led by a communist invasion from southern Yemen into Oman, and um, the Israelis played a, a key role along with the Iranians by providing military uh, planners and uh, and and help Kabus uh, win that war. So from that point of view, Kabus really enjoyed a very uh, favorable view of Israel, uh, and and during time of crisis, really has uh, has seen Israel as a reliable strategic partner. Um, of course, uh, Oman is an Arab country, and it frames its relationship with Israel through cooperating uh, for advancing a lasting peace between Arabs and and Israelis through the Palestinians. That is how the relationship is 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 framed publicly. But in in private, uh, it it was very much tied to Kabuz's vision for the country and to his positive relationship with with Israel as such. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, Omani uh, Emirati relationship uh, attempts of not dissimilar to with Qatar, but uh, uh, Emirati rela- uh, efforts to change the regime in Muscat? Yes, yes. Um, in 2011, right as um, the secret back channel between the United States and um, and uh, Iran took place in in Muscat. Uh, the Emiratis tried to topple uh, Sultan Qaboos for the first. Uh, tried to topple him right at that time, um, and um, of course, uh, what we saw the U.S. position at that time was to again keep these kind of feuds within the Gulf. So officially, it was Kuwait that brokered the detente, if you will, and. Mohammed bin Zayed, along with the Mohammed bin Rashid of Dubai, they came on an apology tour to uh, to Oman. Um, they were picked up by the Emir of Kuwait uh, personally, and they flew together and they came and apologized um, to Kaboos. So that was in 2011. Um, then, of course, what we did not know was that um, after the first rift between the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. Um, in 2014, um, the United Arab Emirates had made a decision that its diplomats in the United States and elsewhere were not to fraternalize under any circumstances with uh, their Omani colleagues. And when President uh, Trump came into office, um, the Emiratis tried to exclude Oman uh, from participating in Jared Kushner's peace talks. Or, or peace uh, talk uh, group meetings with the GCC 
um, members. Which was the Israeli, yes. the Israeli uh, Palestinian peace talks. Yes, exactly. And then, of course, there were a couple. There were other things that they did that really um, uh, angered the uh, Omanis, and that is that they deployed troops right on Oman's border in southern uh, Yemen in, in Mahra province, and they they used it under the pretext of clamping down on smuggling uh, weapons into into the Houthis. But of course, as we know, there are no Houthis um, in Mahar province. And then after, uh, and then after Trump uh, became president in January, 2017, we saw that uh, they moved troops uh, from Mahra to Socotra, which is in another Yemeni Island. And, they started systematically to attempt to isolate uh, Oman from the Trump administration by arguing that, quote, Oman was too close to Iran and that it was too close to the Obama administration and the non-experts and out political outsiders um, in, uh, in the Trump administration felt susceptible to that kind of rhetoric because on one hand, the Emiratis were talking up their own relationship with with Israelis and framing it in a way that they were confronting Iran, and at the same time, they were talking down Oman's relationship um, with with Israel. And then, of course, as we know, um, Oman was isolated during the Riyadh summit um, in 2017, and after and. And it was seen as a as a continuation of efforts to isolate Oman from the Trump administration. Then, and, and then finally, uh, there was another spy ring that was uh, discovered um, in uh, in Oman in 2018. And after that spy ring was discovered, that is when Netanyahu's visit to Oman became a rushed event. It was something that was only, from what I understand, planned for several weeks for about three weeks or so to get him to, to visit Oman and, and to demonstrate Israeli uh, support for Oman's sovereignty and independence. Which leads us to an, another conclusion that you draw in your book, which is, and I'm paraphrasing it, which is the, that, at least from the UAE perspective, uh, the, the war in Yemen is not just about the Houthis, or maybe not even primarily about the Houthis, but much more about the encirclement of, of Oman. Yes, because um, the UAE uh, seeks to establish itself as a as an Arab power, and and um, the UAE by supporting the uh, Southern Transitional uh, Council, which is an in the, which is a movement that uh, at least on paper seeks to revive um, the Southern Transitional. Um, the, the Southern Independence Movement that, that we know from the 1960s um, and 70s, uh, that it fits a larger vision of the UAE as a as a mercantile power with economic interests in East Africa, around the Horn of Africa, and uh, trying to push out Omani competition from Omani ports. So that the Dubai ports and other Emirati uh, economic interests, uh, including by trying to scoop up some of the ports in southern Yemen, would make um, 
the United Arab Emirates a regional power uh, that can compete uh, potentially regionally with Iran and perhaps even with Saudi Arabia at the future stage. That is that seems to be the uh, the Emirati vision and taking on Oman or challenging on Oman um, fits fits that uh, that objective. Sigurd, we could. There's so much in your book that we could probably talk for another hour, and unfortunately, we don't have another hour. But what I would like to do before I let you go is uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and what you're looking at in the future in terms of what you want to do. Well, right now, obviously, I'm working uh, diligently about promoting the book and. Um, one of the things that I want to promote with the book is the role of Israel as a um, as a strategic partner that is acceptable to all the Arab uh, to all the Gulf states, um, whether it is to the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and and Israel, and understanding that Israel is a stabilizing um, power. Um, in in the Gulf is an important realization that I think many in the experts community don't quite understand. And that is to say that Israel is actually putting a lid on many of the inter-Arab fights that have devastating strategic consequences for the broader region and even for the world. And, and shifting the conversation and um, focusing on Israel playing a positive role within Arab within the Arab arena as opposed to um, collaborating with the Gulf states to confront Iran is, I think, is an important change in how we understand the region and how more and better realistic policies hopefully can be crafted in which uh, collective security, again, is restored as, 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 as a norm uh, to uh, U.S.-Arab relations. Problem with that, of course, is that the Palestinian issue is the black swan. Yes, and the Palestinian issue is is an issue that there's no way around it, of course. But I also think what has become clear is that Israel is uh, is not going away, obviously, anytime soon in the Middle East, and that it has been a stabilizing force which leaves the Gulf states with little room to continue to work with Israel um, despite their rhetoric um, on annexation. So in my humble opinion, I think that that the Gulf states do obviously not want to see annexation, but they are already drawn too far into their own diplomatic games with the Israelis that they can give that up easily, even if Israel moves forward with annexation. So how does that translate into what your next project is? That is a, a question that I'm still trying to figure out myself. Um, but for now, um, my the foreseeable future will be dedicated to promoting my book and hopefully make a positive contribution to the under, to the broader understanding of of Gulf of the Gulf region. Sigurd, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. All the best and take care. Thank you so much for the opportunity.